So good evening. So in the particular Buddhist tradition that we are, that we practice in, mindfulness is very important. It's kind of one of the key aspects that we keep aspects of practice that we do. And so it's a fair question to ask what is mindfulness? Also, uh, the concept of mindfulness has become extremely popular in uh, American culture in the last decade or so. Um, in some ways, the kind of the way that Zen was maybe 20 or 30 years ago when there were so many books being written on Zen and the art of. And um, you know, there was, there's even one called Zen and the Art of Diaper Changing. But you know, there was a long, long list of books with Zen in the title. And, um, and now there's books with the word mindfulness in the title. And so there's books like Mindfulness Yoga is one. And there's a mindfulness-based, um, mindfulness-based uh, treatment of depression, my, my, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy treatment for depression. Anyway, there's a mindfulness, mindfulness has become extremely popular in um, the world of psychotherapy. And many therapists are learning a little bit about the principles of mindfulness, using it in their work, and um, finding a lot of benefits in doing that. You find clinical uh, uses of mindfulness in the hospitals. Um, you can go to the local Kaiser here and take a mindfulness-based uh, pain and stress reduction class. Um, and um, it goes on and on from there. Um, so it's a pretty popular. So again, you could ask, when a, since it's such a popular phenomenon now, what is mindfulness? And um, in some ways, the answer appears obvious. Uh, there are some simple definitions you might hear. Uh, one simple definition is that mindfulness is present moment awareness, awareness of the present moment. Sometimes when it's elaborated a little bit further, it's called um, uh, mindfulness, uh, non-reactive awareness of what's happening in the present moment. So the, the quality of non-reactivity is very important. Non-judgmental, non-judgmental, just allowing things to be as they are and being present for things as they are without the adding anything, without do, adding any evaluations, judgments, criticism, manipulations, trying to change it, not being for or against it, but just offering this phenomenal thing of awareness that holds it in awareness. Um, so those are, all, those are both, I uh, think, quite nice definitions, and those practices based on those definitions are quite wonderful, and many, that's, many people have found how wonderful it is uh, to do that. Um, if you look at the, however, since mindfulness, much of this movement of a mindfulness comes from Buddhism, it seems also fair to ask, what is, how is mindfulness defined or understood in the Buddhist tradition itself or by the Buddha? And there we find something that's a little bit more both nuanced, a little bit more different than maybe the most popular understandings here in the West. The, um, and um, one of the interesting things is that if you look at Buddhist teachings, the word mindfulness has a range of meanings. The, words, the Pali word is sati, S-A-T-I. And in having a range of meanings, it seems like it doesn't have necessarily one technical meaning. In fact, by the time the Buddhist uh, created um, a, 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 a Buddhist psychology, where they're studying the different qualities of mind, they did not include mindfulness as one of the core qualities or capacities of the human mind. There's something like 52 uh, mental factors that are kind of make up the core factors that make up mental activity. And mindfulness is not one of those 52 
factors. So suggest that mindfulness is a composite activity of the mind. It's a faculty of the mind, but it's a composite, made up of different things. And so since it's made up of different things, uh, those things can come, in together, come together in a different uh, range of strengths. So, so those different elements can, can give different shades of feeling or aspects to mindfulness. Um, but if you take the various Buddhist, early Buddhist understandings of mindfulness, the closest kind of common denominator meaning is that of holding something in the mind. To hold something in the mind. So, for example, if, um, if you want to uh, uh, focus on the breath in meditation, you have to hold the, the breath in the mind, hold the breath in awareness. So holding it in awareness so you could pay attention to the breath. If you want to remember something, uh, say you want to remember to, uh, uh, you know, buy apples when you get to the store, you have to somehow hold the idea of you need apples in your mind. So when you get to the store, you remember to buy the apples. If you want to memorize uh, a, a uh, chant, then somehow you have to figure out how to hold that chant in your mind. So you memorize it and then it's held, at least. And then if you want, or if you want to uh, recite it, you have to hold it in a more active way where it actually comes back up in the mind so you remember it at that time so you can do the chant. Um, so mindfulness, so, and also if you have certain wisdom that you know and you, uh, and you want to have that wisdom ready at hand, then you need to hold that in mind. If you have wisdom about uh, impermanence, for example, or you have the wisdom not to take things personally, then um, you have to remember to remember that. If you've been warned, oh, you know, your office mate down down this down the hall um, is in a real foul mood because the IRS is after her, and uh, you know, just don't get close to her. If you get close to her, she bites. You know, no matter what you do, so you're told that. So, you know, don't take it personally. They even tell you, don't take it personally. And you walk down past her hallway and you do it, somehow your gait is not quite right. And you kind of, your, click, your footsteps click on the floor. And so the, per, you know, the person comes out of her office and yells, how could you be so careless? And don't you realize I'm working here? And you are a klutz, you know? And um, so you've forgotten that you've been warned about her mood. So you say, oh, okay. Oh no, I'm just a klutz. I, you believe her. But you could also hold in mind the advice you were given. Oh, she's just in a bad mood and you need to kind of remember that and then, um, and then hold that in mind when you hear the anger being directed towards you and then you don't take it personally and you know, you know, you don't. it's a lot easier. So there's certain wisdom, certain understanding that you hold in mind that it can be useful at different times. So the, the word sati... Um, has some of the meaning of to hold something in mind. And in fact, the word, um, the word also means to remember, or has a very close connection to the word remember, to remember something. So you remember what happened a long time ago, you're using your sati. If you are going to memorize something, you're using your sati. And, it, and, um, and one interesting way of understanding this is that um, uh, this, mem- this holding in mind and memorizing is a faculty that the mind, a faculty that enables us to remember. Sati is that faculty of mind, that activity of the mind 
that enables us to hold something in mind. And so if you've ever um, memorized something um, and engaged in the process of memorizing a poem or a chant or a song or something, um, you have to use your mind in a particular way. You have to energize a certain activity of the mind, a certain functioning of the mind to be able to take it in the words of the poem in a more active, more full way. So it kind of registers in a deeper way, fuller way. So there's a kind of, it kind of st- sticks there. You could read a poem. I can read a poem and um, basically understand what I'm, me- what I'm reading. Ask me five minutes later to recite it and I don't have that kind of mind. That can just re- you know. To me, I have to work to actually memorize it. So it's an activity, an engagement of the mind, a heightened engagement of a certain kind to, to memorize. It's also a certain kind of heightened activity of the mind in order to recall something you've memorized in the past. So I have some things that I've memorized in my head and it takes a certain kind of engagement, a certain kind of focus. I have to be focused. I can't be distracted. I, I kind of get into my body. There's kind of more blood maybe going into my brain. And there's a kind of... It's, it's, and it's also, I kind of like it sometimes because it's kind of... Because of the energy and the blood and whatever, I feel sometimes a certain kind of me feels more alive, engaged in that process of memorizing. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, people who do CAT scans or MRIs of the brain find that uh, lots of activity, lots of blood is flowing into the brain and it's a really good exercise for the brain. It's a really good exercise. Um, In fact, uh, I don't know if... I know people who believe that memorizing is a regular thing in your life prevents senility of certain kind. And um, so they're kind of constantly memorizing to keep that exercising the mind, keep them going. So there's a kind of a, kind of a heightened engagement of something. And I don't actually know how to describe what that heightened thing is in some detail, but maybe most of you have some memory or some association of that heightened activity to recall something or to memorize something at the best of it. Not sometime when you're stressed about it, but at the very best of that kind of situation. When I was practicing mindfulness in Burma with Upadita, he, ha- he expected that when you came to interviews to report about your meditation experience, you had to give a detailed account of what happened in your meditation sessions. And you had a very particular way of, of, of narrating what happened. One of the things, you couldn't narrate it as a personal story. For example, you couldn't say, Oh, I sat down, it was so hard to be with my breath, and it was kind of discouraging, and I remember the time in school when I was discouraged about failing a test, and, you know, I'm really, you know it's, life is really hard for me. You know, help me. <laughs> um, that, you know, he, he would just kind of throw you out, you know, come, come back tomorrow. You could have all those experiences, but you couldn't report that way, kind of self-pity, oh, it's so... What you had to do is come in kind of like adult-like, you kind of say, I sat down and um, my, my, I turned my attention to my breath and my breath was rather shallow and tight. As I felt that shallow and tight breath, I noticed that I couldn't follow more than two or three breaths at a time and I would only notice that five minutes later when I woke up from a daydream. At that point, I would sometimes notice uh, that there were thoughts of, um, of despair would arise. I noted those as despair. When I noticed those as, as despair, that despair got stronger. Sometimes it happens that way. 
got the note of despair. At that point, I felt a lower dropping of my energy. And I noted as dropping of energy. I felt discouragement. And I noticed the discouragement. And I noticed a proliferation of thinking. And um, at which point the sitting was over. <laughs> and, and, he, and he would say, good report. That's really good. <laughs> And it was a partly, a, it was a twofold training. I mean, I could give much more nicer descriptions of that, right? It wasn't all. But, uh, but the idea was, um, you're supposed to report it without a lot of reference to self-image and self-absorption ideas. And human beings often are quite involved with self-image, self-concern, how they look in front of others. And so there's all this extra stuff, baggage, that goes on to the description. So you had to kind of just, 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 just the facts, just how it was in its simplicity without all the interpretation. The second thing was, um, the value of that, was that I had to remember what had happened. And um, so there had to be, a, you know, I could easily, I can easily be mind, more or less mindful of the present moment, be aware of the present moment as it's occurring. But ask me half an hour later what happened in, you know, you know, I have a vague sense of what happened. Oh, I followed my breath a little bit, you know, and, you know, I wandered a little bit, came back a little bit, you know, it was nice. And, but, you know, it wouldn't be enough detail for my teacher, you know. So, I had to kind of track my experience in such a way that it registered deeply enough that I could remember it 20 hours later when I had my interview. So, I'm not saying that I was memorizing it, but there had to be this heightened activity heightened sensitivity, heightened registering, heightened awareness of what's there that allowed me to register it so that it kind of lodged a little bit more in the memory banks. Just being kind of just easily aware wasn't quite, wasn't enough for what this teacher required. And at some point, when my concentration was strong, my meditations would last three hours. And I had to report on those three hours. That's a lot of you know, a lot goes on in three hours, right? And um, he did, he, there was one way, he, he did make it a little bit easier for you because you could keep a, a notebook. At the end of your sittings, you could jot it down. So you didn't necessarily have to me- memorize it for 20 hours, but you had to memorize enough to get to the notebook. And um, so I would, uh, but three hours is a long time. So what I would do was I had this, this watch here, actually, and um, I, sit, I put it on to... Uh, uh, to beep every 30, sec- 30 minutes. <laughs> every 30 minutes. And, um, and I was meditating alone, so it was okay. And um, every 30 minutes it would beep. And I would take that as an opportunity to review the meditation up until that time. Now that review is not the same thing as mindfulness. In fact, if you listen to some of us teachers like me say, you know, don't think about the past, just kind of stay in the present, stay in the present, stay in the present. But I knew that was the practice but since I had to kind of remember, I thought, well, I'll just, every 30 minutes, I'll just do this exercise of reviewing what had happened up until then. But what I found was that reviewing process strengthened that muscle of, of memory. And it strengthened the muscle of mindfulness. Because it's kind of like the same muscle. Do you follow? So, and then, because I was kind of doing this reviewing and knowing that was important, it would help me, encourage me to have this little heightened sensitivity or awareness when I did my practice in, in general. So it registered. Now, I'm teaching a retreat uh, right now 
and hidden villa. And um, and um, I was there for several days. These buildings there, wooden buildings. And then um, you know I was mindful, pretty mindful of the place. I was a mindfulness practice. I was doing it. And uh, then a couple of days ago, I looked at the buildings and realized the building is red. <laughs> I hadn't registered there was red. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I know what red looks like, but uh, it seems kind of obvious. Some people are very visually oriented, and that's what they see automatically. But you know, this big, it was big barn red. You know, like looking at the barn door, right? And I hadn't, you know, registered. Oh, this, this is red. And in fact, if you had asked me before it registered, what color is that building? I'm not sure. <laughs> and green, you know, what color is it? And um, so there, there's a, so I was aware, I was present, but I had, hadn't registered what, was, what had happened. Or you could be sitting here, meditating, maybe it happened to some of you, and you're basically maybe engaged in the present moment, you're engaged in the breath, and a car drives by, and you're kind of aware of the sound of the car. It's in, in the awareness. However, you, you haven't really registered, you haven't really... Uh, taking it in in some clear way. This is the sound of a car. So that once the car is gone, you know, you hardly even notice that there is. You're focusing on the breath. Or you're talk- listening to me. You're focusing so much on me, you know, you don't even notice the car out there. Even though it's in awareness in a kind of way. So, mindfulness is different than awareness. Mindfulness is using awareness. You have to be aware to be mindful. But mindfulness is a heightened activity of the mind that allows you, in a sense, to register or fully acknowledge what the experience is that you're paying attention to right now. When teachers like me and other mindfulness teachers teach, we often will use, casually, the word awareness and mindfulness synonymously. And uh, because, you know, just... For most, for, mo- if you, for most people, doesn't, this distinction is not that important, maybe, but, you know, initially. Um, but it, it, um, it also lends itself some, some confusion by treating them as, as synonyms. Mindfulness is different than awareness. Awareness is a precious, precious phenomena of our mind. And it's really the, one of the key things. And awareness by itself, and its purity, is very closely akin to the experience of liberation in Buddhism. Mindfulness is different than awareness because it's this heightened activity that really acknowledges this is happening. So like if you go to a, this is an example I like using, if you go to a, uh, you know, you, you go visit some friends or a party and someone greets you with a handshake that's limp and you know, they, nice to see you, hi. They're off seeing someone, you know, already interested in someone else you don't really feel like you've been met. The person is aware of you, right? The awareness was there, but you don't feel like the person really acknowledged you as a person, really met you. You meet someone else, and they stop what they're doing, they turn towards you, they shake their hand, they look at you and say, hi. And you really feel like they're acknowledged, they're there for you. Mindfulness has a quality of really being there for something, acknowledging it. In that sense, you can't be in a hurry doing mindfulness. You have to take the time to really Really, be present for one thing when you're being so when you're being present for it. This one thing 
here. I'm going to be there for it. Um, when you're being aware, there can be a kaleidoscope of many things happening at once. But when you're being mindful, there has to be some choice about what it is you can fully acknowledge in this moment. So some choices involved. And um, so we often say, you know, notice the breath. Or notice what is most compelling or most pronounced in the present moment. Or if you're doing work with your hands, pay attention to your hands. And really acknowledge what your hands are doing. Focus your attention there. If you're listening to someone, really be there for the, for the person or be there for the, with the words or something. There's some choice that goes on with mindfulness. Mindfulness involves, involves some choice. Awareness doesn't have to involve any choice. Because of what, you know, if, you're all, if you all were, are really relaxed, you know, to imagine yourself totally relaxed and, but not sleepy, and I tell you, don't be aware. Stop it. Don't be aware. You know, unless you did something like, I don't know, went to sleep or I don't know. It's, you can't stop being aware. It's what the mind, what the human kind of condition does. It does awareness all the time. But um, and it's very pleasant to realize the simplicity and the naturalness of awareness when we, when we rest in awareness and there's no other kind of complicated activity going on like judging or criticizing or resisting. But mindfulness involves a deliberateness, a deliberate engagement of this clear recognition of this is what's happening now. Now, there's a danger with this kind of deliberateness, and that is that there's a number of different kinds. One is that many people come to meditation with overactive brains. They're exhausted, they're stressed out. And to be told, you've got to do something deliberate, heighten something, I mean, you know, the wrong place then. You know. Many people need to relax first before they engage this heightened activity. And so actually, when we teach mindfulness, we often teach it with focusing on the breath. And the breath has this double function where it can both be a concentrating activity, it can relax you, and it can be used to cultivate mindfulness. And so we don't, so when we, when we say, you know, follow your breath, be with your breath, a lot of people first use it mostly as a place to, as a way of calming themselves down. And that's great. You need, you, need, you need to come into balance. You don't need to get really calm like a couch potato, but we need to come into balance. And most people are so imbalanced that relaxation is the name of the game. That's what needs to happen. So if you hear this idea of mindfulness is deliberate heightening of the mind, and that's not right for you, just register that, hold that in mind, and, and wait until such a day or year when that's appropriate. So another part is that the idea of deliberateness involves, can involve a sense of me doing something. And as soon as I am doing something, I'm in trouble. Because I'm doing it, I can be doing it right, I can be doing it wrong. I could wonder whether I'm doing it right or wrong. <laughs> I have sat down to meditate, followed two or three breaths, and then asked myself, 
Am I there yet? Have I gotten it right yet? It's kind of like the analogy that's given is you take a, a farmer plants a seed of corn, some corn, then she comes out and she pulls up the, uh, you know, this little, little seedling comes up like this, you know, an inch out of the ground, and then pulls the, the plant out of the ground to see how it's growing. <laughs> Great, it's growing. And you can't plant it back then, it's done, right? So you, you can't just start right away evaluating and judging. And also, uh, there might be all kinds of, you know, the eye part of it, there might be all uh, kind of habit, strong habit of being aversive. And so the sense of deliberateness comes with it, maybe resistance. Or there might be a strong habit of desire, wanting. I want a really good meditation. So I'm going to kind of lean forward into the future, holding on, trying to get something really good. Or striving might be a habit. Or fear might be a habit. Oh no, I don't know if it's, I can do this. It's not safe. And so that I part often comes, you know, with you know, we kind of confuse or mess up that deliberateness, that, that doing part. So that's another reason why concentration practice is often taught first. Relax, take it easy. Um, and once you get relaxed, maybe you're more less likely to add all this extra stuff when it's time to switch to the deliberate mindfulness practice. So I'll give you one of, the Buddha gave a lot of images, kind of similes or analogies for the kind of practices he was teaching. He was kind of like a genius. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of images, similes, analogies, metaphors. And he gave a, a variety of metaphors or similes or images for mindfulness practice. And they're different from each other, these different images. So it isn't like all the images pointing to the same thing. Mindfulness is not just one thing. It can manifest, a deliberate registering of being present for things registers itself in different ways in different times. But here is one, very, I think, very powerful image for mindfulness. It has to do with um, a shepherd who um, is herding sheep, taking care of the sheep, the flock. When the crops are growing, like the rice is growing in India, the crops are growing, and the sheep are up or about walking around um, uh, grazing, the shepherd has to be really attentive to the sheep, make sure they don't stray from the fields or whatever into the farmer's crops, to eat the crops. And you have to, the farmer has to, the, the shepherd has to go there and push them away and this way and that way and herd them and move them and be really on top of it really closely. And it can be quite exhausting. Uh, what comes to mind is the idea of herding cats. Uh, I've never herded sheep, uh, you know, but I've tried to catch semi-wild sheep. It was a job I had when I lived on a farm. And boy, that was something, trying to catch semi- you know, these sheep. And, um, and so, um, you know, it's, it's you know, a lot of, lot of effort and work, you know, manipulating, getting this way and that way and doing all this. Once the crops have been harvested, and the rice fields are just stubble, stubble field, then it doesn't matter if the sheep wander into the crops, into where the crops were. At that point, the shepherd doesn't have to watch so closely, or doesn't have to be involved in manipulating, working the sheep, and moving this way, and getting the good. At that point, the shepherd can sit leaning against a tree in the shade, and just kind of keep a very spacious, 
eye on the sheep. He has to kind of watch the sheep, make sure no one steals them or something. Just keep their eye. But the, the shepherd can be very much more, quite relaxed. So the image here is leaning against a tree, just under the shade, not needing to worry or be afraid of anything, letting the sheep do what they do, make sure that they don't kind of wander too far away or get stolen. Mindfulness, the, the awareness of mindfulness practice is like the shepherd leaning against a tree, watching the, the sheep in the stubble, stubble field. That kind of ease. You allow your experience to be what it is. You're not trying to shepherd or you know, herd your experience, make it better or different or whatever. But you also, um, but, and you stay relaxed in the uh, gazing and watching of the experience. So that's a nice image, right? For people who are stressed out, that's great. You know, rest against the tree and just watch. And, um, and then you can kind of continue this analogy of the sheep and, uh, and say that everything is sheep. There's nothing which is not sheep. So, you know, whatever happens in your experience, you don't have to leave your, you know, your tree. You can just keep everything in this kind of spacious, open gaze of awareness, recognizing what's going on. And the interesting thing is that if you really push this analogy, that even the shepherd is a sheep. So even the one who's doing the watching is another sheep that you hold in the same way. And nice. Everything's sheep. After the harvest. So, um, so that's what, so, but that's kind of a very relaxed idea of mindfulness and sometimes that's really appropriate. That's the kind of mindfulness we want to cultivate and develop. Um, and sometimes what we want is something more heightened. You know, kind of something really allows something to register in a deeper and fuller way. And part of the reason for that is that um, there's a variety of reasons, benefits from that. One is if you really stop and register something, really be there for it, you can see it more deeply. You can see what it is. And part of the function of mindfulness is to see deeply into the nature of what your experience is. It's so easy to kind of flit across the top of our experience, the surface of it. And it's not so usual to really, in a calm, deliberate, full way, let awareness really see what's really happening here. And a lot of spiritual traditions will say human beings are often asleep. They live in illusion, in enchantment. And one way or the other, the spiritual task is to wake up from the illusion, wake up from the enchantment, wake up from the sleep. So this idea of being able to see deeply and clearly in the Buddhist tradition is part of this way of breaking through the illusion and seeing what's here. You have to stop and really see what is here. And often, how things appear on the surface are not how they actually are. And so, so you know, if we really want to be what things actually actually are, we have to somehow be able to see through the surface appearance of things. Um, in the Buddhist tra- uh, tradition, in the early Buddhist tradition, uh, it seems that the word mindfulness, also, or the word sati, also um, is closely connected to wisdom. And um, so sometimes you hold your wisdom, or there's kind of a discernment or understanding that goes together with the mindfulness. 
So in that sense, mindfulness is not always just kind of dumb. It doesn't just simply register what's there, see what's there. But it actually understands what's there in some fuller way that might be more fuller than just seeing it as it actually is. So one way of understanding this is through a different analogy that Buddha used for mindfulness. And here, the Buddha said, mindfulness is like the gatekeeper of a fortified town. Back in the ancient world, they had fortified towns with walls around them. And there'd be one gate where everybody could come and go. And the gatekeeper's job was to make sure that um, only the right people got in and the wrong people were, were kept out. The bandits were kept out, for example. And um, so, the, um, so the gatekeeper kind of keeps, sees who's coming in and out. Mindfulness is like the gatekeeper. And mindfulness sits at the gate, sits at the place where our, we, we, we contact reality, we contact life in the living present. And then as a part of the function of mindfulness is to help, or, or the wisdom together with mindfulness, is to make a choice about what experience to let in and what experience not let in, or what direction to let the mind go in and what not to go in. So, for example, if you're sitting and the decision is to stay with the breath, that's what you're going to pay attention to. And the gatekeeper notices that uh, thinking about what's for dinner tonight comes up to awareness. That's interesting. I think it'd be a good idea to plan dinner. So there the gatekeeper knows, oh, planning for dinner, that's the wrong person to come in right now. Let's keep that out. I'm not going to pick that one up. I'm not going to open the door for those thoughts. I'm just going to just drop it and go back to the breath. Or say thoughts come up that say, I think that you're, uh, you're being a little bit too harsh in your mindfulness here and you pay attention, I think it'd be useful if you kind of cultivate a little more kindness in your approach and how to be mindful here. The gatekeeper says, you know, that's right. This is kind of harsh here, the way I'm practicing. So we let that thought in. Okay, let's see if we can find more kindness in this approach. So there's kind of, so mindfulness is this gatekeeper, puts us at the place of choice, the place where we make choice. And then with the wisdom, it helps us decide what to let in, what not to let in, what to act on and what not to act on. So part of the function of mindfulness is to help place us in the place of choice. And then to learn to exercise that choice in a wise way. So mindfulness is not only this non-evaluative, non-judgmental, or non, you know, bare attention awareness of what's happening here. There is a time when mindfulness is involved in some kind of process of evaluation and making a choice. And that brings up the problem of deliberateness again. Then I'm making the choice and all this stuff happens. Everything is sheep, including how we are practicing mindfulness. And a big part of the process of cultivating and developing mindfulness is learning about how we are doing the mindfulness practice. Just like when you're learning to use a bicycle, at first, all the usual things, I learning a bicycle come into play. You know, they're watching, I better do it right. And you fall off. Or, um, you know, uh, 
I can master everything really quickly. You jump on the bike and pedal and you fall right off. You know, there's all these attitudes that go involved in riding a bicycle. And slowly you have to learn, you know, it takes a while. And then eventually you can learn to ride the bicycle and you don't even use your hands. Look, mom, no hands. You know, it becomes second nature to ride the bicycle. But it takes a while to find the right way, find the balance. So same thing with mindfulness. You have to do it in order to learn how to ride the mindfulness bike. And you have to fall off a number of times before you learn how to be mindful. But in the process of doing it, slowly, you're also paying attention to how am I doing this? Am I doing it with too much striving? Am I doing it uh, being too relaxed, too non-committal, kind of like? There's something called a checklist approach to mindfulness. And that is, you've been told to pay attention to what's happening. So you just kind of note it really quickly. In-breath, done that. Out-breath, done that. A sound happens. Hearing, click, done that. You know, the quicker the better. You don't really want to kind of be present for anything. So just click, you know, check, check. And that's not the same thing as really being there for it. And, you know, okay, I'm going to be here and really take this in. So, um, so the idea is, um, so I lost track of what I'm thinking, what I'm saying. (laughs) It's a lot to hold in mind here. So, try to pick it up somewhere. (laughs) What? The sheep? It's all sheep. It's all sheep. And um, so part of the process of mindfulness is learning to purify your mindfulness. And it takes a while to do that. In different circumstances, you know, you have to learn that process in a different way. And there are a lot of benefits to mindfulness. There's the benefits of learning not to be so reactive, learning to kind of meet your experience from kind of an adult-like place of clear acknowledgement, here I am. It's kind of like being an adult, I think, being mindful. You know, seeing here I am, I see it, um, and uh, you're not skirking around, or you're not embarrassed or apologetic about it. Just, you're really there, seeing it. Um, And um, so it really helps to kind of find that corner of the mind that can have that kind of adult-like stability and independence that's not enmeshed or entangled with all these different feelings and emotions and thoughts and beliefs that we might have. Um, Another benefit of mindfulness is it can be relaxing because the alternative ways in which you use our mind are so entangled. And so as we begin disentangling it, things start to relax. Another benefit of mindfulness is it helps us to see more deeply what's going on. And most people who have not looked at their mind and hearts don't really know what's going on. Some people, it's a culture shock. It's a major shock to realize, wow, I had no idea what was driving me. One of the common ones is uh, for people to realize uh, how pervasive fear is. They had no idea how it seems to influence and infiltrate everything. But they were so busy doing life that they didn't notice. But they stop and look. Wow, I had no idea. So mindfulness helps us, it helps us to see. And mindfulness practice also is self-purifying in that you're doing it. Slowly you'll learn how to do it in a way that doesn't have all these complications. And that translates also to learn to do the same thing for awareness. 
And it helps us, as we're purifying mindfulness, we're also purifying awareness. Because awareness itself doesn't, they're not so entangled. It becomes simpler, simpler. And at some point in doing mindfulness practice, it's appropriate to let go of mindfulness. That deliberateness, that engagement, you let go of that too. It's a kind of heightened activity of the mind and that activity of the mind is too much and you, and you let go of mindfulness. It's a somewhat advanced stage in meditation to do that. And long before that, the experience of being mindful, the deliberateness feels like second nature. It's fun, it's beautiful, it's self-reinforcing, it has a wonderful feeling to it. Um, and so it doesn't seem like the work, maybe it feels like when you're just beginning. But at some point, mindfulness has to be let go of as well. And then, one of the things that can happen is you're left with, because you've done all this work purifying mindfulness, when you let go of mindfulness, then you're left with purified awareness. Radiant, open, transparent, translucent awareness. Awareness that has no location. Awareness that has no center. Awareness in which there is no there or here. Awareness in which there is no movement. Awareness which doesn't move. Awareness which has no boundaries. Awareness which has no center. That's pretty good. But it's also awareness which has no you there. So what good is it? You're not there, then you, you know, you, you, it's no you to put a badge on that says, you know, accomplished. <laughs> accomplished meditator. You know. And what good is it if you can't get credit? <laughs> <laughs> Awareness with no you. So, in brief, that's what mindfulness is today. I'm sorry that I had to kind of give such a short introduction to this huge topic. Because it's, you know, I didn't, I didn't exhaust the topic of what it, mindfulness is. But I hope one of the things you come, you get, a, two things I hope that you get from this talk. Or three, or four. <laughs> anyway, um, one of the things is um, that, um, you know, mindfulness is not the same thing as awareness. So sometimes you use a synonym. Mindfulness uh, is not one thing. But it's kind of a range of things. It kind of includes a variety of different, different situations. Mindfulness looks slightly different. There's different ways of what, what, it, what it means. And the other thing, the last thing I'd like to hope to get across, which I didn't really say maybe, but that is I hope that you come to really enjoy the adventure of mindfulness. It's really a great adventure to be on. Um, not to take it as an onerous task and spiritual responsibility or something that's a burden, but rather something that is one of the greatest adventures you can take in this life.
because it can really help clarify and liberate so much of what it means to be a human being. And it just, it's just amazing, you know, the, the doors it opens. It's amazing the vistas it provides. It's just, it's just amazing. You know, it's, it's uh, enriches life in a way that, you know, I would say it's the vistas, the experiences, the variety of things that you discover through the mindfulness practice is greater and more varied than if you spent your life being a world traveler. Though Chogyam Trungpa, the great Tibetan teacher, said, if you can't meditate, travel. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you very much.